1: Baghdad Soundwalks.
2: Hello, fellow travelers. You're listening to Baghdad Soundwalks. I'm Dina.
1: And I'm Ali. We have got a juicy one for you today, Dina. <laughs> when I say harem, what do you imagine? Actually, let me rephrase that. If you were a Hollywood producer <laughs> and I said harem, what would you imagine?
2: Okay, I see women scattered all over a room wearing sexy clothing, two pieces, maybe some jewelry. I see a water fountain in the middle and basically just women waiting around to please a man. Am I right?
1: I mean, I think of the I Dream of Genie" get up with the pajama pants. What do you call those? Parachute pants?
2: Yes, they're actually called harem trousers, you know. Are you kidding? I swear to God, I used to wear I them. <laughs> I used to wear them in my, like, teen phase. They were called harems.
1: Jasmine wears them too, yes. right, from Aladdin. So they, Okay, I did not know they were called harem pants. <laughs> I swear but they are. How fitting. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting is that like, the harem is imagined as this really salacious place, as you talked about. Women waiting around for the sexual pleasure of, of men, you know, full of debauchery. But in reality, when we look at history, the harem was just our private house.
2: So how did it get translated that way?
1: It's an example of what happens in the 19th and 20th century where people start to imagine the Middle East in a particular way. You know, Edward Said has his whole critique about Orientalism, this imagining of the Middle East... And the harem becomes a really big place of that imagining. It becomes an eroticized place. And surely there's sex in the harem, but it's not an exclusively sexual place. It's not a pleasure palace.
2: Well, talk about a completely different reality.
1: But <laughs> look, let's be real. It could be a pretty exciting place. There's a lot of harem politics that we'll talk about. But really, the harem is just a sort of fancy word for the private quarters. Middle Eastern households, like we mentioned, were really communal, and doubly so if you're a ruler, because there is no concept of a private castle in the Middle East. The palace, that's a public space. Anybody has access to it. You can literally walk in and petition the ruler.
2: Right, so you could enter other places of the home, just not the harem.
1: Right, that was the private space for you, your children, and your family.
2: And we both know, Ali, that the harem is not unique to the Middle East.
1: It's not unique to the region in any way, shape, or form, even if harem, as an Arabic word, definitely is. But let's actually think about this together a little bit. If you were a public official or a ruler or such, where would you be most vulnerable?
2: I'd say at home, definitely at home, because even today, presidents have entourages when they're out and about, but... You need your security at home as well. Isn't there this like statistic that more security breaches? happen at the White House than when the president is out and about.
1: Yeah, that actually makes quite a bit of sense. I know that they keep making those barriers bigger and bigger and the fence is bigger and bigger at the White House.
2: Yeah, it's got to be when you're at home then, Ali. We've cracked the case.
1: Yeah, where you put your head to sleep is the most vulnerable place. And so in light of that, the harem emerges as, you could say, a need to create a safe space for the ruler away from the public. And of course, the ruler's family, who's also at risk.
2: And that makes sense. You've mentioned so many times that it's a communal space. They need somewhere they can be private and safe. So I get that. And other rulers probably had harems too, and... I heard that it actually predates Islam, right?
1: We think that the harem probably started with the Persian empires. We have some evidence of it in sort of the Achaemenids, but mostly the Sasanians who are the precursors to the Abbasids. They sort of created a space where elite women could be secluded from the ordinary population. You got to keep away from the peasants, in other words. But it was also a place for the ruler to be at home.
2: Okay, I get it. And the Muslims then adopted that practice.
1: The Abbasids for sure did. Remember when we talked about the founding of Baghdad and why they picked that location and their reasonings for it?
2: Yeah, very deep symbolism, astrology, and they wanted to create a link between now at the time. And the past.
1: I mean, think of it this way it's a lot like new management. Have you ever had a job and suddenly it comes under new management?
2: I don't even know if you want to touch on this. (laughs) Don't get me started. Uh,
1: Now we need to hear it.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, something that stands out to me is definitely when I was in my first real job ever as a teacher. And my first year was fine. Second year, I got a new head of department. And you know people that just change things unnecessarily to kind of mark their territory even though nothing needed to be changed?
1: Oh, yes.
2: Yeah, I'm going to leave it there. Otherwise, I'm going to start losing my cool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That there is exactly what I'm talking about. There's a difference between, we'll say, smart management and bad management. And the difference is how much you try to change things. Smart managers, they keep things mostly the same. But they have a way of integrating what people are already doing. People have their own rhythm, the things that they do. And so rather than change it, they connect with it. Bad managers, on the other hand, almost always want to shake things up too soon and it ends badly. They adapt themselves to the local environment. And they adapted a lot of Persian customs, mostly because they intermarried with a lot of the Persians. And so one of the things they adopted was the harem. The idea of an institutional harem that existed in other parts of the Middle East, but it only became widespread by the time of the Abbasids.
2: Can we talk a little bit more about the rulers? So... Is it only them who had the harems or was that open to everyone in society?
1: I always love when you ask this question because you're always thinking about the difference between the really elite rulers and ordinary people. I love that. Thank you. Because you're right. Ordinary folk didn't have a harem. They lived pretty communal lives and they had private quarters, but it was nothing quite like the harem.
2: So a lot of the culture and a lot of the things you're describing is actually habits of the elite didn't that create any jealousy in between societies? I mean, I can imagine being a poorer man in Baghdad and being like, I want a harem.
1: Maybe, but honestly, it sounds like more of a headache than (laughs) anything else.
2: And in these harems, were there concubines and wives and mistresses? Tell me a bit more about what I would see.
1: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about this. In fact, let's imagine it together. You've had an entire day full of courtly intrigue and politics and drama, and you retire, you pass through a curtain separating the public from the private, you pass by special guards, whose only job was to protect your family. And then you enter into an open space and they've got cushions and couches and rugs. Your family congregates together, women, children, playing, laughing, even music. I mean, you gotta keep entertained. And learning how to play an instrument or compose poetry or play chess, that's a must.
2: And they all learned these things?
1: Oh yeah, the harem was tied to a formal education system. The queen mother would actually teach her daughter daughters and the concubines and others and even the art of conversation and the art of leisure was taken seriously there was a style to it and you wanted to master it
2: i just want to make sure i fully understand this if you were a woman living in a harem you were not going to leave that space
1: If you were an elite woman living in a harem, you were very unlikely to leave that space. That's not something you looked forward to doing. It was really a sign of their elite status that they had the servants do things for them. And this is found in other cultures as well, whereas elite women, for example, wouldn't allow themselves to get tan and so they would carry umbrellas because it was a sign of them not working the fields. So this was the big difference. Ordinary women, they were very public. We have women that were working alongside men, women in centers of Learning, women in the marketplace, but elite women, no.
2: So they consented to this. This is what they wanted.
1: Oh, well, consent is a little bit more complicated because we are talking about a time period that includes enslaved people. So some women married for choice and they got power, and some less so. It is definitely a difficult place for a woman to be, but that's not to say that women didn't find a way to exercise power and agency.
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, in any male-dominated society... Women always find a way.
1: And that's true. We're looking at patriarchal societies. We're looking at societies dominated by women. But that doesn't mean that women didn't wield power or were simply passive agents of history. We have stories of powerful queens, women at ordinary levels engaging in intellectual pursuits. They are able to achieve that power in spite of the difficulties that they face from society. Look, I'm Middle Eastern. And I can tell you that my mom was definitely in charge (laughs) of my family.
2: My mom was in charge of disciplining us for sure, (laughs) for sure.
1: (laughs) And in fact, it's by being a mother that women could gain a great deal of power and influence. There's actually a really great example of this, of a woman named Khayzuran. Khayzuran is a queen. She actually starts her life off as an enslaved woman who then marries as a concubine into the harem of the Khalif, Khalif Mahdi. And it's at that particular point that she starts to work the harem politics and she works her way up to being his main consort, his main wife. She then gives birth to two. Sons, one is Al-Hadi and the other is Harun al-Rashid. She has a lot of power with her husband, but when her husband dies, her son tries to curtail her power. Because a woman's place is not in politics; a woman has no right or say in what the empire does. So, what does Khayzuran do? She has her son killed. <gasps> She has al-Hadi killed and replaces him with his brother, Harun al-Rashid, who recognizes her as an important authority, and she becomes the queen mother.
2: She killed her own son?
1: She killed her own son to maintain her power. There's a great deal of politics here, and there are other really incredible women. There's one known as Zubaidah. Zubaydah has a son, al Amin, And we're actually going to be talking about al Amin in a future episode. But al Amin has very little interest in continuing the line in his family. He's out partying all the time. He's out drinking. al Amin may even perhaps have been gay. He has a lot of attraction to another male poet. And so Zubaydah worried that she's not going to have any grandchildren, something that any Middle Eastern mother has probably brought up <laughs> at some point just or another, gonna say. when I'm going to have grandkids. I hear that from my mom all the time. (laughs) So what does Zubaydah do? She comes up with this really brilliant strategy. She's going to have all the women of the harem dress as young men. She has them pencil on mustaches and wear men's clothing in order to keep the interest of Al-Amin. So we're looking at like really fascinating figures. I mean, there's another one, Queen Buran, who is a scientist. And she ends up becoming the main political and scientific advisor of her husband, al-Ma'mun. So this is a very difficult time period to be a woman, but women find a way.
2: The harem is so radically different from how it's portrayed. I mean, it's still a hot spot. You've got women from all sorts of backgrounds, some enslaved, some princesses, some super controlling mothers. You've got them rising to power, playing their own game of politics. It's just, I really wasn't expecting to see it in that light. And... These queen mothers and their sons and daughters all on top of raising their kids. It's just, it's very interesting.
1: Yeah, and at the end of the day, besides all that politics, they were just living in the same way that we are. There's a lot of things that are different back then, a lot of things that we might find strange. There's also some beauty in the fact that people just try to make do with the circumstances that they are given it's similar to how we go about our lives it's unique to that time period in history but it's those similarities and those differences that I always find beautiful in history
2: next week let's travel outside the palace walls and look at the bazaar But
1: for now, I'm Dina. And I'm Ali. This is a Ubisoft podcast produced by Paradiso Media. Be sure to subscribe to the Echoes of History podcast so you don't miss the next episode of Baghdad Soundwalks. See you next time, travelers.